This week's Nerd Cognito is brought to you by the Easy Roller Dice Company. If you are looking to make an impression at the table, maybe show off a little bit, or just have a great quality set of dice or some dice accessories, you owe it to yourself. Go to nerdcognito.com, scroll down the page, and find the link to the Easy Roller Dice Company. Not only will you get an amazing set of dice, but you'll be supporting an American company, an American product, and NerdCognito. Easy Roller supports us, and you should support them. Check out the hollow metal dice if you're looking for something unique. Those caught my eye, and I'm sure they'll catch yours too. They have dice, dice accessories, everything that you need to step up your game to the next level. Again, go to nerdcognito.com, scroll down the main page, and find the Easy Roller Dice Company. Now, on with the show. It is Nerd Cognito. Once again, I am Ryan David, and I'm joined by Bert. Hello, Bert. Hey, Ryan. How's it going this week? Oh, it's been a very interesting week, to say the least. Um, I'm excited. I got uh, two more Masters of the Universe figures in the mail today. Um, very geeked. Anti-Eternia He-Man and Clawful are now going to be rampaging my plastic castle Skull. I see, and so your plastic addiction continues. <laughs> uh, I've tried to pull back a little bit, and I'm now caught up on the release waves of the new figures, so I'm just at the mercy of how fast they can pump them out. The ones that, uh, the ones that I missed, I, I fear that I have missed, but I've done a pretty good job of getting almost everybody that I want. There's still a couple couple of guys, as I used to call them when I was a little taught. I, I, what are you doing? Playing guys. Uh, a couple of guys <laughs> that I want to get. Yeah, I think we always did that. My uh, my brother and I were G.I. Joe, Joe kids, so it was playing army guys for us. But ah, No, I, I was definitely in the He-Man and Voltron camp. Um, and that would be like the first tier. And then the second tier was Transformers and... Um, oh, goodness. My brain just totally evaporated with what it was. Mask, mask, mask. Mask, okay. I remember mask. Armored Strike Command with a K. I thought for a minute you were going to say GoBots. No, 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 not GoBots. Never got into Thundercats. Mask was was definitely my jam. The little dude loves Mask. We watch Mask to this day. Hey, Dad, can we watch some Mask? (laughs) Who am I to say no? (laughs) No, I mean, heck no, that was... uh... I mean, there were, what, 75 episodes in that series? It ran for a while. It, it ran for two or three years, which in 80s cartoon time was significant because they released every week. So, right. you know, good for Mask. I, I kind of wish that Mask would be rebooted um, several years ago, maybe even more than a decade ago now. Gosh, we're old. Um, IDW Comics released a Mask reboot which was geared more for the adult fan, which was fantastic. If you uh, have a digital comic reader, pick up the IDW mask. It was great. I don't remember that. I must have missed it. But I remember watching Mask as a kid, and I liked the uh, 
I like the show, and now you've got the theme song stuck in my head. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> it, wasn't it a terrible, terrible theme song? It was awful, but now when it gets into your head, though, it like earworms and burrows its way in there. If I could play it without having to risk a copyright strike, I totally would right now, because <laughs> I have it actually... Not on the primary sound effect deck, but I have it on my secondary deck. I don't know why. I just threw it on there one day to, to test something and never deleted it. So I'm staring <laughs> at the button right now. But I know oh, that if no. I push it, we will get blank air on Spotify. So we don't want that. No, no. We can, we can you know, it'll just say stay stuck in my head and you'll, we'll save all of these other people from that nonsense. That's right. Well, this week we have an interesting week to talk about. Uh, we're going to start with the hand-wringing du jour that is running rampant through the tabletop role-playing community right now, and that is consent sheets and consent checklists to use in Session Zero. So we're going to top off the show with that. I've got some news for you, and then I thought at the end of the show... We got some feedback in the NerdCognito inbox this week, and folks were asking for recommendations, sort of ask Bert, so to speak, but it was just more generic, for co-op games. And I thought we'd just bullshit about some of our favorite co-ops. Sounds good. So as much as I'd love to keep talking about He-Man and the growing mass of plastic that is in my game room dedicated to the Masters of the Universe... I think we should jump right in to consent checklists in Dungeons & Dragons. Okay. You're familiar with this this idea? I posted about it maybe a month or so ago, because, you know, <laughs> we're always ahead of the curve. And my take on it, predictably, is you've got to be fucking kidding me. But I, I sort of wanted to bounce some ideas off of you. You, you know what the consent checklists are all about, right? Right. I've never used a specific checklist per se, but for example, I started playing um, a role-playing fate game online with some friends from high school and things like that recently and some friends that I've known for a few years. And so we sat down beforehand and talked about our expectations. I mean, the guy who's running the game talked about things like, I don't want, you know, DM a bunch of like romance elements, you know, your character's dating, that kind of stuff. He's like, so I'd like to leave that out. Like, so people talked about kind of what they expected from the game and what they'd like to avoid it, as far as gameplay elements. But I've never used an actual checklist. I know I see that you sent it to me here and this one is pretty comprehensive. I would say so. Now, I I am totally on board with understanding that role-playing brings out both comfort and laughter and anger and hatred and discomfort. But I don't know that anything would necessarily be off-limits for a game that I would be running. I, I get what your buddy is saying. Like, the last thing that I would want to do with a bunch of, I mean, let's face facts, male-dominated hobby, a bunch of guys sitting around the table... Maybe a girl here and there. Yay to our girls out there. Rachel, we didn't forget about you. We know that you're, you're out there. And there definitely is a welcome influx of the fairer sex into the hobby right now. I think it would be really uncomfortable if 
someone expected me to DM like a full-on Pornhub description of something that's going on in the game. But again, I think that's kind of common sense, right? We're not there to create spank memories. We're there to live through these characters' lives. Right, of course, some people would argue that romance is... It could be romance could be a part of that character's life, but it's not a part that we want to see. Yeah, I, I mean, I think of uh, you know my game time or my RPG time when I'm playing as a character as sort of almost like a highlight reel of their life. You're you're playing for through the interesting parts, right? And it's not to say that sex and romance wouldn't be a part of that, but I'm not going to be talking about the throbbing veins in some <laughs> Gith Yankees cock <laughs> by any means. But there is this new trend now, and I think that the vocal minority has really embraced it, that you must absolutely, positively, always, always have a consent checklist prior to the game that tells people, you know, what's okay and what might make you feel mm, a little uncomfortable. Now, before we go into the details... Imagine if you tell me that something makes you feel uncomfortable without forcing it, there's the opportunity for me to insert it in a campaign. What the fuck do you think I'm going to do? It'll become a central part of your campaign immediately. I know you, Ryan. Well, (laughs) I'll give you an example. Oh, probably 20 years ago, there was this dude named Jack that played with us. And up front, he said, you know... We're, we're crawling through this dungeon. You don't have any spiders in the dungeon, do you? I, I really have an issue with spiders. Uh, I, I don't like them. They freak me out. Even thinking about it just just gives me the willies. And I said, well, Jack, uh, you're in a dungeon. I'm not going to tell you if there's spiders. But I think it's safe to assume that spider is kind of a generic go-to dungeon denizen. Right, I mean, they're, I mean, they're, considering most dungeons are not are, are abandoned, uh, you know, areas full of traps, treasure, and monsters, spiders, rats, you know, the basic stuff you would kind of expect to be there. I felt exactly zero need to eliminate or substitute the spider encounter that I had planned for a session or two later, and we went through that spider encounter. And Jack was visibly not comfortable. But Jack also got through the encounter, didn't have a mental breakdown, and lived to tell the tale. In fact, his character actually died during that encounter. And I had the spider brood mother send several swarms over her body, or over his body. And I took pretty good liberties describing the pincers ripping out the flesh of the dead body cruel ryan cruel cruel but not out of sorts and i certainly didn't plan it you know i like jack maybe if i didn't like jack (laughs) i would have planned a few more spiders but it is part of the game we're talking today 2022 looking at things like Mm, I don't want blood in my campaign. I don't want harm to animals in my campaign. Hmm. 
sorry, you might want to find a different game. You're playing Dungeons and Dragons. You you, you do realize this. That that would be my first go-to. But I'm gonna, I'm going to run down some of the things on the checklist. The I guess style of DMing would hand out this checklist and you have three options. Green, which is enthusiastic consent. I want you to have these things. And then yellow. It's okay if it's veiled or off to the side. But if you're going to put it in to be front and center, we need to talk about it first. Hmm. And then red would be, you cannot include this in your game, Mr. GM. Pretty distinct levels of the players telling the DM what the hell to do with the world. That's the first thing that rubs me the wrong way. How would you feel if if you were running a campaign and I said, you know, Bert, I absolutely, positively do not want you to use elves. It's a hard line. You cannot use elves in this campaign. I mean, that would be a discussion we'd have to have offline. I'd, I'd be, I'd kind of try to figure out your reasoning behind not wanting elves in the campaign. I mean, obviously there's not a... Elves like, give me the wheel, willies. I, I flash back to PTSD when I was a preteen and thought I was an elf, and it's just not good for my psyche. Hmm. Puts you in a weird situation, doesn't it? Well, I mean, when you're developing a story that, you know, and you're trying to exclude a major, one of the major races of D&D like that, I, that's that's kind of one thing. Like, I can't see creating a world without elves to accommodate a single player. Of course, other things like plots around sex and romance, plots around, you know, politics. Like, if if it comes up, I don't have a problem taking part in it, but it's not something that I expect from my D&D game. Does that make sense? It does. And, and I sort of fall back to the, the default argument of it's a fantasy role-playing game. Those elements can and should come up, and everything in the game is not going to be flowers and sausages. There's going to be things that you really enjoy. There are going to be sessions where you walk away and you are completely fulfilled. The dice went your way. The loot went your way. The story was able to carry forward in as positive of a way as possible. And then there are going to be sessions where the dice don't go your way. The plot does not steer in the direction that you want. There may be something like Jack with his spiders that makes you feel uncomfortable, and that's part of the beauty of the game. You get to work through all of that wearing the mask of your character. We are bending the will of the world for the needs or mental fragility of one. And, and I don't play that. I don't do that. And I think that a checklist like this can be a valuable tool in that, you know, if every one of your players is expect, you know, like I said, it comes down to player expectation. If every one of your players indicates on this checklist that they don't want to see sex and romance in the campaign, I'm like, fine, I can leave that out. That's not an issue. If one person does it and everybody else is like, no, definitely want to see it, you might want to pull that person aside and talk to them about, you know, hey, 
everybody else is really looking for this in the campaign, you might want to consider, you know, either sitting this adventure out or, you know, looking for a group that's more, more to your taste. Like it can be a valuable tool for kind of, and I see why they say it's for session zero, because it can be a valuable tool for trying to figure out what all of the players are expecting. And also for you to kind of gauge their, you know, preferences together, especially if it's a new group. I would get it if this were, I guess, a conversation instead of a checklist. And people approached it as just a sort of putting your finger in the wind to see which way it is blowing, as opposed to, as written, do not include this in your game, GM. That, that's a challenge <laughs> if you, if you, when you phrase it to me like that. But I know, I'm, I'm an old homophobe, racist, misogynist, whatever ist you want to put. The other thing that I don't like is the same people that are very much opposed to inserting politics or divergent or minority thoughts into a game are the ones that are inserting politics and divergence and minority thoughts into the game by using a checklist like this. I cannot imagine any group that wants a full experience that doesn't want just to run around and have a virtual character exploration anime hug fest to really take this seriously. Wait, I mean, last week, didn't we talk about the My Little Pony tabletop role-playing game? We did, and I would highly encourage anyone that would check any red box on this list, anything that would be, you cannot include this DM, to explore a game more of that type. I think that if you're going to parallel a game that has any sense of realism, you have to be able to not necessarily enjoy it. You may not like it. Jack hated the spiders. It made him uncomfortable. It made him squirm. Literally. In his chair. But he was able to overcome it through his character and embrace the fact that part of the game is taking the good with the bad, the bitter with the sweet. There are going to be things that GMs do in any system, a good GM at least, that surprise and shock and offend all characters at different times. And I just see this as really handcuffing. And I guess I guess that's where we differ. Like you see it as handcuffing, whereas I've always seen that six out of six people don't want to see this thing in the campaign. That uh, that's the perfect know. thing for your big bad evil guy to exploit. I'm not going to throw the kitchen sink of the phobias at the players all the time, but for me to go, you know what? I'm not going to include this. It would be disingenuous, and it's not faithful to the experience that I'm trying to produce. So I guess it really does come down to that group makeup and that group conversation, not checklist. Right. right. You involve paperwork, and the law school dropout in me comes out. 
<laughs> uh, Plus, it sounds like we have very different, you know, our, it sounds like our storytelling styles are very different when it comes to being a DM, which is fine. Everybody's got sort of their own route that they take on that. So No, and you've played under me, and I've played under you, and guess what? At the end of the day, we still had a good time. Sure, absolutely. So... When it comes down to the checklist in the hobby, I say you need to find at the least a different medium to have these conversations. And it doesn't need to be explicit. It could be, hey, let me know if there's something that's really off limits. And at best, you need to go into it as your character with an open mind understanding that there are going to be moments of discomfort. Right. I mean, I think what we're both saying basically is players talk to your GM, GM talk to your players, try to figure this thing out. You know, I I don't think that you need paperwork to do it, but in the case of, I could see it maybe for something like an online game or something where you're playing with strangers that you. And that's where I think this was born. That's really where I think that this whole thing is born because a lot of that scream and stomp your feet movement are exclusively playing online. So maybe I can give a little credence to that, but again, it comes down to, and people are going to throw gatekeeping up at me, but no, vetting your group. You have to be a good fit for your group as a player. You have to be a good fit for your group as a DM. And you also have to be willing to say, Look, this isn't a good fit. Let's not get invested. So right. vetting, vetting, vetting. Go ahead and call me a gatekeeper. <laughs> right. Now now obviously, you know, in established groups and things like that, let me let me kind of throw this out there for you. So can this checklist, which I know you, you hate the checklist. Hate the checklist. Can can this checklist be a vetting tool then you're playing with all strangers none of you know each other it's not likely that you're going to sit down and have an open conversation or dialogue with each other before starting the game you may develop friendships along the way but you're all strangers does this then become a valuable tool for vetting the group weeding out people who aren't going to fit or trying to um you know make the group a little more cohesive before you start that game for total strangers i think it's a lazy tool what do I do with any new player that's going to come into our group? Uh, normally you have a conversation with them first, you vet them yourself, and then you have them do a trial run with the group. We've done it with two or three people that I remember over the years. And that conversation does not happen at the table. It's, hey, meet me at Joe's bar. Here's the address. It's a couple of blocks from where we play. We're going to have a chat for at least an hour before you come to the table. And there have been people that have gone through what Mikey likes to call my interview. Mike Mike got the interview. He brought a knife to the interview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mike got the interview uh, way, way, way back when. So this is not like a new practice, but uh, yeah, paperwork... Go fuck yourself with your paperwork. <laughs> there will I be... Never got, I never got the interview when you started... When you invited me to your gaming group, it was like, hey, we play here and and uh, show up. <laughs> but I had also known you for a considerable amount of time. There is that. Prior to getting that invite. So um, you, you, did, you dodged the interview. 
No, Mike Mike told the story on the show uh, a, gosh, three or four months ago about the interview. And, uh, yeah, he brought a knife. He called his safety bro and was like, look, I'm meeting this dude at a bar. <laughs> if, uh, if you don't hear from me, call the cops. <laughs> Vet your groups, people. Oh. It, it never ceases to make my head explode. I think the fact that this conversation came up after we had the viral explosion on Twitter to one of my tweets, Bert, I kind of might have sort of j- poked the bear. Well, uh, as you are one to do, you are one to throw rocks at the internet trolls. Well, um, it, it just dovetailed with it. Without getting into the specifics, we'll we'll hit the news up after this, but the post that went viral was a joke. I, I posted a meme. Okay, so we're at that level of seriousness, right? I posted a meme that showed a whole page of text and then blurb, blurb, blurb. And I said, guess which player is getting offed within the first session or two? <laughs> oh. Uh-huh. And people done lost their mind. The interesting thing is, once again, there was as much support as there was ire. And, you know, the the normal internet support. This guy's a dick, but I get his point. <laughs> so, you can uh, see me stir the cauldron. Follow me on Twitter, at I Hate Ryan David. Let's face it, Ryan, you're a contrarian. As soon as somebody tells you not to do something, that becomes your all-consuming focus. Just call me a rebel. This rebel's going to take us into the news. Uh, This week we have an interesting week of news. Um, We're going to start out with a story that piggybacks on one of our subjects from last week, Bert. Okay. We talked about the Zelda HD remaster last week. Right, the one that required the, you know, legal or quasi-legal download in order to be able to play. Right, you needed the ROM. Um, Nintendo has officially updated fans on the state of Breath of the Wild 2. Breath of the Wild 2 was originally slated for a 2022, that's this year, release for the game. Everyone expected it to be around holiday 2022 because that makes sense for money, right? Right. Christmas releases, big bucks. Well, Nintendo announced today that they have, quote, decided to extend their development time a bit and change the release to spring 2023. That's Hmm. a little more than a bit, but Zelda fans did not take the news well. The community raged and got their pitchforks and their torches and were just railing against Nintendo and the developers. Again, sort of mimicking this expectation that fandoms have. Right, and the problem is I don't see how that benefits anybody. I mean, developers have always had pushbacks on release dates and things like that because the product isn't where they want it to be. The last thing you want to do is get a game, uh, you know, first day it's on sale, and it wind up being a terrible experience. It's one of the reasons that I never started 
Fallout 76, which I know is one of your favorites. Right, and now, Cyberpunk is the, uh, another recent example that I think right. something was rushed to release. It, it's really a no-win situation for the developers because if they rush it to release and release an unfinished product, the internet trolls are going to roar. If they push back the release to release a polished product, the internet trolls are going to roar. Hmm. Our fandom and our hobby needs a fucking enema. I've said it before. I will say it again. Chill out. It's games, people. It's games. We do it to have fun, to relax, to unwind, to kill time. It's not that serious. It's not that serious. I'd rather have a little patience and play a game that I know is finished and is going to be what I expect it to be rather than, you know, get a steaming pile of crap on day one. And the developers echoed that sentiment. Quote, in order to make the game experience something special, the entire development team is continuing to work diligently on the game, so please wait a little longer. They want it to be good. Breath of the Wild did a lot of business for the Zelda franchise. Zelda had some lukewarm releases up to the first Breath of the Wild. You can't follow up something that was gold with a pile of shit. No, you can't. So, Link, I'll be willing to wait, and I kind of hope that this Breath of the Wild 2 launch coincides with a new Nintendo console launch, which we are way, way overdue for if you look at their timelines, but we shall see. Zelda fans, chill the fuck out. Right, but looking at the, uh, you know, looking at the popularity that the Switch still has, you know, are, are you really expecting Nintendo to release a new console at this point? I'm expecting a Switch Pro. I'm expecting something that'll pump out minimally 2K, if not 4K graphics. Hmm, I see what you're saying. You're, you're looking more for a... Um, an upgraded Switch rather than a whole new console. Right. Something that will make the Switch competitive with the current console market. Hey, it's not a news story because I, I didn't pull the actual article, but I saw that some PS5 pre-orders from Walmart. Walmart released a crap ton of PS5 pre-orders in March. They all got canceled today. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I, I, I didn't pull the story, but just as an aside... I thought that was a little humorous because people are still clamoring for consoles, which is good in, in a short supply market. It's good for the industry and it's good for the hobby. Speaking of not being able to buy something, the big bad Amazon has decided that they are going to begin phasing out sales of a certain type of product that is very specifically becoming a must-have for both the board game and the tabletop role-playing game group slash hobby slash enthusiast. Hmm. The 3D printer. Amazon has announced plans to ban sales of all 3D printers by 2023. Why, you ask? 
I was going to ask, did they give reasoning behind it? Because Amazon is going to launch their own line of 3D printers starting in 2024. <laughs> Amazon so, has been working on the hardware and they are working on a software solution. Now, you know, um, one of my design classes that I used to teach was pretty intense in 3D modeling and 3D printing. And I have quite a bit of experience with it. I also know that for the average end user, 3D printing software and the hardware and fine-tuning your printer and leveling your bed and getting quality prints is just not something that is ready for the masses. It's not. It's, it's a learned skill. And even the best masters of that learned skill still have failed prints. So I would assume that Amazon is really, really going to hit this hard, both in the hardware and the software department, to make it foolproof. And I'm in the market for a new 3D printer right now. Hmm. Seeing this, I'm kind of in a, can I milk my printer? <laughs> plural for a couple more years it might be dumbed down and keep it simple but if i just want to run some miniatures for a board game that's all i want is dumbed down and simple there is that i mean looking at it i thought maybe they were stopping because they were worried about liability issues you hear stories about people 3d printing weapons or like machine parts or you know i've always wanted to, to 3d print a gun and i never got around to it <laughs> or even something like um you know copying proprietary materials that kind of thing like you hear about that stuff i thought maybe that's the route that they were going but they're just phasing them out so they can sell you amazon brand ones exactamundo got it bezos wants a bigger rocket we got it i think it's good I think Amazon releasing a 3D printer is good for the 3D printing space because it could very well make it accessible to folks where it's not the most accessible. I know a lot of folks that wanted to get into it because of the level of frustration and the learning curve on it. I know people that have bought a printer and it's now collecting dust. So... This could be a good thing, Bert. I don't know. Everybody likes printing miniatures. Right. I mean, I guess we'll wait and see. There's a lot of things that you could do with them. Custom miniatures for your tabletop role-playing group. Like, tons of things that you could do with it. The uh, You know, the question is, what's the quality going to be like? Or If they're dumbing it down to make it simpler for users, is, does it have a user-friendly interface? Is it something that's going to make a mess out of everything. So I guess it's a wait and see on what Amazon's doing with 3D printers. Yep, absolutely. you got to wait before you can churn out your inch and a half rogue. But uh, if you want an inch and a half rogue, you can get it through Wizards and Dungeons and Dragons because D&D &D is looking to chip out a little bit of that Warhammer market. Dungeons and Dragons Onslaught was released well at least news of it was released which is an upcoming miniature skirmish game not my cup of tea but right. interesting to see them go into this space right i mean they they did like the pre-painted miniatures a while ago they had a they had a miniature 
They had miniature sets that they were releasing. I really liked They're, those. That was great. Me too. Because I thought those were wonderful. I have tried to paint miniatures, and I don't have the patience or the skill to do it. Those so were great. Those, right. Those pre-painted plastic miniatures, you know, you they were versatile. They were great to have. Like, I had... Quite, I bought quite a few of them myself as gifts for DMs and things like that. But they, um, to see them actually go into like a like a competitive game based around it, like Warhammer, is interesting to see. I was never a big Warhammer guy, but I know some guys who are into it, and there's money to be made there if you know if the game catches on. There sure is. There's money to be made and divorces to happen because of Warhammer. Um, it is a costly venture for you to get into that. Knowing that Wizards is going to try to hit the widest target possible, they're also probably going to look at that price point and make it more attractive. So it's going to be interesting to see. Um, they're planning everything you would expect. You know, there will be competitive tournaments and and live plays and everything that you would expect from a miniatures game. So what you're saying is, you know, we could be looking at poor man's Warhammer. If the price point comes down, you could see a lot more people getting into that hobby. I really do. And I really think that this is a smart move by Wizards because they do have the price point at the right entry level, I would say, especially compared to Warhammer. The, um, I guess you would call it the starter set, is 135 bucks, which sounds like a lot to the gamer but when you look at it in the scope of what people invest in miniatures games that's a drop in the bucket so agreed yeah that's a that's a relatively tiny amount compared to the cost of uh certain warhammer properties that you're looking at shit we're dropping two three four five hundred bucks on kickstarter for some big board game releases 135 bucks for a skirmish game I'll at least look. I don't see myself getting into it just because it never was my thing. Me either. I was never a big uh, miniature skirmish guy like that. It reminds me of, you know, battlefield simulators and stuff like that. I was never a big, uh, I was never really too far into those technically. I, I taught one time with a guy that actually wrote a system for for wargaming that simplified it and dumbed it down so to speak the book's still available on amazon i'm not going to plug it because he's a raging douchebag but he wrote a really nice system so there's a market the the unfortunate thing for him was he was an independent author right and it never had the traction you get hasbro behind this and there there very well could be some traction Hmm. okay our favorite free Streaming service, Pluto TV, has another announcement that might make you happy. Oh, really? What's that? They are going to launch, or they have launched, April Fool's on April 1st, a Stargate channel. Huh, interesting. It's going to air all of the films and all three of the TV shows, streaming free with ads. Uh, There are... Some caveats right now as far as licensing. There are a couple of gaps in what they're able to air. But generally speaking, you're looking at Stargate, the Pluto channel. Did you get into Stargate? 
Uh, I saw the original film. I liked it. I watched some of uh, SG-1. I kind of got lost when it came to, like, Atlantis. Like, I was never a big right. Atlantis fan. But uh, I did look. I did get into it a little bit, not full-on fanboy or anything like that. But I'd be interested to check out the channel. I was just watching Pluto TV before we started the podcast. We were watching Iron Chef while we were having dinner. Everybody loves Iron Chef now that it's on Pluto. Yeah, with, with Stargate, I I ran into the same problem with Stargate that I ran into with Babylon 5. And that is, if you missed one episode, you had no fucking clue what was going on. <laughs> Absolutely none. Because it was that level of intricacy in the writing. Well, in, in the cheesy sci-fi writing, right? But... Same thing with Babylon 5. If you missed one episode, it took you three or four episodes to recover your continuity. And that's why I fell out of the TV series. I did watch SG-1 back way back in the original days when it was the Sci-Fi Channel, right? Am I thinking correctly? Right, right. But, um, yeah, it was just one of those ones that it's a commitment, but putting it on a streaming service like Pluto really eases that commitment because it's there for you 24-7, probably through some on-demand aspects too, through Pluto, makes it a little more accessible. Interesting. People are, are, are very, very happy, especially the Stargate fans, that it's there because I don't believe, and I may be wrong, but I don't believe everything is available to stream anywhere else. So I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't believe it is. I don't know who the series originally released through, but I don't. I don't uh, recall seeing all of it on any one of the streaming services, at least that I've been exposed to. Right, Pluto's doing it right because they they have the ability through their model to cater to the fandoms. Right, you can have a Star Trek channel. You can have a Stargate channel. You can have an Iron Chef channel. And instead of putting it into a lineup on a traditional TV network channel, so to speak, right. they're able to just say, hey, you want to watch Iron Chef all day long? Have at it. So more applause to Pluto, which is really paramount. They're the muscle behind Pluto TV. And... Hey, it might even lead to some conversions into Paramount Plus with 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 the right advertising. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, some sort of partnership or something like that. That would make sense. Before we talk about our favorite co-ops, I intentionally did not send you this image. And I'm going to send it to you now. So fans are going to message me about how unprofessional I am because they can hear the clicky-clicky of my keyboard. But I just popped a image into our Discord chat for you, Bert. And this is our last news article of the day. A new augmented reality tabletop gaming platform hmm. called Tilt 5. They announced the partnership with Asmodee Digital. Really? Yes. And that is the big news because Asmodee publishes everything. Right. They have a huge catalog of games. 
the hardware was actually on display. The folks that have had hands-on with the hardware say it works incredibly well. It's very intuitive and easy to use. Hey, cleanup's a breeze if you have a digital augmented reality tabletop game. Uh, but bringing Asmodee into the fold gives you access to popular mainstream garbage like Catan, but you also get more nuance. Pandemic, Ticket to Ride, Gloomhaven, Terraforming Mars. And those are specifically titles that they have announced that they are investigating the feasibility of releasing on this platform. How would you like Terraforming Mars, Bert? Mr. Terraforming Mars. So when they say augmented reality, I mean, I assume you're talking about the addition of sound effects, um, digital uh, images. So it could be a really interesting way to really uh, increase the, uh, the immersiveness factor of certain games, like quests for Gloomhaven or, you know, events from Terraforming Mars. You know, if they, if they trigger an animation or if they trigger a uh, even just the addition of sound effects and things like that would make those, you know, a lot more interesting to people who maybe weren't looking into them before. Right. Now, the platform was a successful Kickstarter, and you can reserve yours now for a $5 non-refundable deposit. Retail MSRP on the XE kit, which is their baseline kit, is $359. Not, not hmm. Again, not terrible. I'm sure you have to buy the content as well. Right, but I mean, it's on par with, you know, if you think of this almost like a, um, a tabletop console rather than as a, you know, as a board game purchase, that price point doesn't sound too far off. Now, the question is, you know, how many players does that accommodate? Does each player have to buy their own hardware? Like, well, no, no, the, the wand, uh, there's a wand that you use to manipulate the thing. I mean, it's, it's fucking holographic board games, Bert. That's awesome. Right. But, um, you, you know, the wand, I'm sure you can just do a pass and play. You might need to buy some of their special AR specs. Right. And that's what I was asking. Like there's augmented reality glasses. Like, when you buy the console, does it come with? Oh, okay. Up it, the console will the initial setup will accommodate four players. Additional headsets required. You know, beyond that. Let's say you even add it up to five hundred bucks, and I'm being very, very liberal with that number, right? If the sure. the base kit is three fifty, part of me really wants to just throw down five bucks, throw down the three fifty, and get this when it comes out. But part of me also remembers how excited I was for the Virtual Boy. Ah, uh, there was that. It was hyped everywhere. Now, you know who else will be really excited about this uh, this new technology, Ryan? Who? Uh, the wife who complains about your board games being everywhere. Shh. We just had a very serious marital discussion about the... Uh the game room and the state of the game room this week. So we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, um, 
it, it's not getting any better. I, I, I've had it on pause. Ever since I moved all the stuff from my old office into the game room, I'll be honest, it's, it's just sat here for months. And I'm not the best when it comes to non-digital organization. First, first, first person to admit it. That's me. Right. I get it. I get it. It's time for a clean out and you're, you're not looking forward to it. It is, but, uh, yeah, if, if worst comes to worse and I need to lose 50 games, especially 50 games that probably don't get as much play as they deserve, it can, it can happen. 50 games will give me room for another pinball machine, right? <laughs> oh, man. Hey. I don't know. 50 games seems like a lot, but I only own maybe two dozen games myself altogether, so. Well, <laughs> don't come to uh, the friendly local gaming shop with me. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but that wraps up our news. Kind of a, a, a fun. There wasn't really a a piss you off, make your head explode news story this week. No, no. I mean, a, a lot of like feel good stuff, or you know, interest in new technology, new products. Like there wasn't anything that kind of. Uh, well, I guess you know, the Zelda wanna... people lost their minds a little bit, but I, I've come to realize that the world has lost their minds a little bit. So it's just par for the course right i mean you know none of those stories made me want to bash my head against the wall i'll take it as a win that is a big win speaking of wins we should have a, a communal win we've been playing a lot of head-to-head -head stuff in yeah. our gaming group lately and probably my favorite genre of board game is the comp or no, listen to me not the competitive but the cooperative board game which sometimes takes people by surprise, you know, especially if they're looking at I Hate Ryan David. I also love co-op games. Now, interestingly, because they kind of fall into two camps, don't they? Do you like your um, your co your co-op games to be true co-op all the way through, or do you like a co-op with a twist or traitor mechanic added? Because that's kind of the two camps they fall into, isn't it? It is, and I honestly can say that I like both. I, I I don't have one favorite or the other. I love trader mechanics. I think that they're great. I also love a straight-up co-op. So, hmm, I'm very, very much down the middle on this one. Okay, and that's reasonable. I, I am, too. It really depends on kind of the game and the theme. You know, for me, whether it's uh, you know whether it's a true co-op or whether it's a co-op with a trader mechanic or with a twist at the end, it makes things uh, you know. I, I like either one. I I'll tell you what I don't like in in the co-op space is when there is very clearly a competitive game that gets the afterthought of co-op rules. I I, uh, I generally don't enjoy those because it comes off as it was an afterthought. It's not how the game was designed. We mentioned that when we did our review of Windward, that it yes. seemed like the co-op version of the, of the rules for that game was kind of just tacked on. 
Yeah, and I think that a lot of games do that. A lot of games do that with specifically co-op and solo variants, just because. And when it's an afterthought, you can tell that it's an afterthought. But You really can. We had uh, a couple of people write in to nerdcognitopodcast at gmail.com and say, we are looking for something in the co-op space. So I said, well, you know what? Let's just roll them off the top of our head. What are some of our favorite co-op games? Okay. So we'll, we'll just go back and forth until we either run out of time or run out of brains. Sounds fair. I'll let you start. Since co-ops are my favorite, I, I could go forever with co-ops. Um, sure. Then. And I'm going to go back in the Wayback Machine for some of these because I really do think that they hold up that well. But you, you go ahead first. Not necessarily your favorite. Hold your absolute favorite for, for the end. But what's a great co-op that you love to play? One that we you just introduced me to recently, the most recent co-op game I remember us playing was Unfathomable. Uh, and I thought that that was really well done. It had a great theme behind it. The um, the trader mechanic made sense, you know, whether you were a hybrid or a cultist or just a passenger on the ship. Like, unfathomable. Like, the gameplay was tight. The, uh, the story was interesting. I thought that was a really well-put-together co-op game. For those of you that don't know, or for those of you that go and look and read about it, you can't mention Unfathomable without mentioning Battlestar Galactica, the board game, which is a, a co-op, and it's actually the co-op that Unfathomable was built on top of. Um, but I absolutely agree with you. Having played both extensively, uh, Unfathomable is a top-notch co-op. It takes everything that Battlestar Galactica did right, streamlines it, and cuts out all of the fiddly parts that it did wrong. So it is a wonderful spiritual successor to BSG. Unfathomable is is in the Cthulhu mythos, where you are passengers aboard a steam liner, the SS Atlantica, and of course you are attacked by evil cultists and evil from the seas, and the passengers have to make their way back to their port before the ship is sunk. Fantastic co-op. Great, great miniatures. Great components. Uh, Fantasy Flight, Asmodee. Again, maybe it'll show up on Tilt 5. But definitely a game that is easy enough to introduce to even a beginner in the board game space, but deep enough for old heads like you and I to really appreciate because you can't really master it because it plays different every time. Agreed. If you uh, want to check one of the early, early, early episodes of Nerd Cognito, we actually did our rundown and review of Unfathomable. It was me, Mikey, and the jet airplane that lives in his living room. <laughs> uh, so if you could tolerate Mike's bad audio, go back into the archives at nerdcognito.com and check out Unfathomable. I'm going to go way back, Bert. Okay. Way back in the land of co-op board games, and I am going to pull out Ghost Stories. Ooh, okay. Great game. 
very difficult. Oh, Ghost Stories is insanely difficult. I can count on one hand the number of times that we have won the game. But as far as a co-op goes, it is the stereotypical archetype for a co-op. All of the players have a common, very daunting, very challenging goal. In Ghost Stories, you are all Shaolin monks protecting a village that is overrun by, um, you know, evil Japanese kill-everything ghosts. And you have to protect the village, and it really depends on synergy between the players and working towards the common goal. Um, love Ghost Stories. Incredibly difficult. Do not expect to open the box and win, even on the tutorial difficulty. Incredibly difficult game, but fantastic in its own right. I think the thing that I love about co-ops is whether you win or whether you lose, the group experience makes it worthwhile. And Ghost Stories True. is one of those. True. Uh, I mean, and when you lose, and you will lose, you will lose over and over and over again, you can commiserate together about how how terribly you got beaten. The other thing that's great about Ghost Stories, especially as a sort of an introduction to co-ops, is it plays relatively quickly. Once you get the rules under your belt, you can play Ghost Stories in under an hour. And, uh, again, fantastic co-op experience. Uh, funny aside, I have always had the difficult-to-find Black Secret expansion for Ghost Stories. Uh, Ghost Stories is inherently a one-to-four player game. But Black Secret introduces a fifth player, and that fifth player plays the big bad in the ghosts. So <laughs> the, the ironic thing is... I've owned it forever, and I've never played with the Black Secret expansion. Right, and I mean, Ghost Stories itself is hard to get a copy of, let alone the expansions. I remember when we played it originally, I looked into getting a copy, and it was prohibitively expensive. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Ghost Stories does appear to be out of print right now. Ironically... The White Moon expansion, and I'm guessing it's new old stock, which is the expansion that I do not own, is on sale on Amazon right now. So if anyone out there wants to give a poor old podcast host a great $30 gift, Ghost Stories White Moon expansion. Send it my way. <laughs> um, I, I, I imagine it's only in stock because there are limited numbers of the the original game to get, and... What's out there is out there. Damn, I might buy this. Now, <laughs> I'll wait until one of our lovely listeners sends it my way as a thank you. Because that'll happen, right? I've only been called every ist in the book, including a child rape ist this week. I'm, sh I'm sure people are going to uh, send me a nice expansion. On a more positive note, Bert, what's another great co-op that comes to mind? Okay, this one is a little more obscure, and uh, I'm going in the Wayback Machine, but I've always loved this one. Everybody says that it's very similar to another board game that you love, but I find that it stands on its own, and that's Fortune and Glory. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, The Fortune cliffhanger game. It's a, uh, for those of you who don't know, it's a pulp-style board game. Think Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, 
the board game. You're, you're either fighting cultists or Nazis trying to get treasures and each character plays uniquely as a mechanic. Plus it has this sort of cliffhanger thing that comes up in the story that makes it really interesting to me. So I always really enjoyed playing Fortune and Glory. Yeah, Fortune and Glory is a great <clears throat> knockoff of a, of an amazing co-op game. <laughs> um, it stands on its own. It I does, think. it does. If I, I think Fortune and Glory as a single-shot co-op purchase is a good buy. The reason... I give Bert a hard time about Fortune and Glory right now is because I was saving this for the end because it is my favorite co-op game of all time. But now the seal has been broken and the old ones must arise. I'm talking about Eldritch Horror, which is very similar to Fortune and Glory, only in Cthulhu Juice. And with 27,000 expansions. Nine. Nine to be ex- exact, and oh, probably yeah. only Nine. three of which you can still get. Yeah, unfortunately, outside of the base game, some of the expansions have gone out of print and do not appear to be making any comeback anytime soon. But Eldridgeor has you as one of the globe-trotting. Um, what are they called? They're they're not heroes. Investigators. Uh, thank you. One of the globe-trotting investigators that are seeking answers to the strange things that are happening on Earth. And it has you going across the entire globe, including Antarctica with a sideboard, Dreamlands with a sideboard, um, collecting clues, solving mysteries, and hopefully defeating one of many great old ones that are rising to eat the Earth. Not likely. Uh, we, we, we lose that more often than we win, Ryan. you got to admit. We also take a different approach when we set it up. By design, by the rules, you can select your investigators and synergize them as, as a group. And we always just do random investigators. That puts us at a huge deficit. Yeah, that's fair. All right. I gave my Eldritch Horror... What do you got? Oh. One more, Bert. What's your granddaddy of them all? Oh, we're already at, at granddaddy of them all? Well, I had to pull I, out Eldritch Horror. I mean, we're not necessarily oh, yeah. at, at the granddaddy of them all. Eldritch Horror is my granddaddy of them all. Right. I had uh, I had two more, but uh, go ahead. we're going to go. So my the one that I will play over and over again, because I have never played a game of it that I have successfully won, is Dead of Winter. Dead of Winter. There was a ton, and I mean a ton of hype about Dead of Winter when it first launched. I have played that game probably a dozen times over the years. I have won zero times. (laughs) Zombies always got you. No, no. uh, About four out of the 12 times, the traitor got us. But I have never been on the winning side. Yeah, Dead of Winter is a co-op zombie game with a traitor mechanic where you are one of the survivors just trying to get by in the zombie apocalypse. Uh, it has crossroads mechanics in it, which those of you that follow the industry know are just some twists and turns that are sprinkled in for a little random event sort of effect. Um 
interesting fact, I picked up the Warring Colonies expansion to Dead of Winter, even though we haven't played it for years, just because it was cheap the other day. So if we ever want to play Dead of Winter, not only can we have the traitor and the zombies to worry about, but we can have two colonies going at each other's throats. <laughs> Make it even harder to win. Perfect. Uh, but that takes away the inherent spirit of the co-op. You know, that does turn it more into a competitive style game. Do you have another one, or do you want me to talk about the last yeah, one? Yeah, I, I, I have. I'm just trying to think, you know. We've given some big, expensive, or out-of-print co-op examples. Okay. Here's one you can go to Target and pick up right now for a very reasonable amount of money. And that is Horrified. Horrified is a cooperative game that is scenario-based where you are in some sort of struggle with one of the classic Universal Pictures movie monsters. So Dracula, Frankenstein, Creature from the Black Lagoon, that sort of thing. And you are working as a group to, of course, defeat the monster. Uh, of course. Great little game. Very well thought out. Very straightforward. Incredibly entertaining. The theme is good. And, hey, I think that's the first game on the list that we've popped in that's less than 40 bucks right now. So it could be a great entry for someone that is looking for a new co-op to sort of test the waters with. Plus, you know, who doesn't like the old-timey movie monsters? Agreed. I mean, the, the classic monsters are classics for a reason. They are indeed. All right, you've got one more? I've got one more, and this was the first co-op game that I ever played. Uh, Last Night on Earth. <laughs> tell everybody about Last Night on Earth, and tell them why I'm laughing. Well, Last Night on Earth is kind of an interesting co-op game. Again, you have characters with different powers and abilities, um, but it's mission-based. Like You can literally play through different scenarios but they're all co-op scenarios. Like the one that's that I played through three or four times is get to the truck, which you have to get fuel for the vehicle, find the keys, get to the truck, and escape a zombie-filled town before the sun gets comes up and you all die. Um, which I thought that it was interesting. It was the first game that I ever played that was a true co-op. There was no traitor mechanic or anything like that that we ran into, at least in the scenarios that I've played. So it made things... It was a fresh concept to me at the time, so it holds a sort of a soft spot in my heart for Last Night on Earth. But tell them why you're laughing, Ryan. Well, I'm laughing because it is all of that magnified by a turn-it-up-to-eleven level of campiness. And that's why I'm laughing at Last Night on Earth. Everything from the art style, which is not even C-level actors. It's like Bert and I getting into costume and taking photographs for the game. <laughs> uh, down to the writing, down to uh, the component pieces. Everything is very B-movie, and intentionally so. It was very clearly a conscious design effort. But 
the game is cooperative camp personified. Right. If you want to play Army of Darkness, the board game. You You're know, playing that's... Last Night on Earth. Well, I have one more and then an honorable mention. Okay. Uh, and the one more that I have is not a surprise. It is the big granddaddy of them all, Gloomhaven. Oh, man. Gloomhaven is a beautiful board game-based tabletop role-playing experience. Gloomhaven is wonderful in the fact that, unlike other dungeon crawlers, the game is autonomous in how it runs the monsters and runs the dungeon, and a group of players can legitimately feel like a party of adventurers in a Dungeons & Dragons campaign. The mechanics are tight, innovative, it's a beast of a game. For 140 150 bucks, you are picking up almost unlimited entertainment. And you literally have years worth of content in Gloomhaven. The pieces and components are great. The quality is amazing. It's legacy, so you are building your own custom, one-of-a-kind game as you play through it. I don't have anything bad to say. If I had to say something bad about Gloomhaven, it's it's cumbersome because it's so big and you've got all the pieces to manage. That is the only negative that I can think about Gloomhaven. I actually was thinking, Jesus, we need to run through Gloomhaven in our group again and give it now, a legitimate course, shot. The only thing that uh, you know kind of turns me away from it as somebody who is gaming on a budget, you know, that starting an initial investment, I mean, if you don't know that you're going to love it, you don't want to put that kind of money into buying it up front. If you love Dungeons and Dragons, if you like playing with your friends and having a cohesive unit, it's worth that money up front. And now, in comparison, again, you can pick it up on sale. I've seen it recently as low as 110 bucks. You are buying years' worth of content in Gloomhaven. And if you're not willing to invest in the actual board game, then there's something to be said for, for having the tangible board game. There's the digital version, which is authentic, but it just ain't the same. It ain't the same when you're not setting up your rooms, getting right, your characters right. on the map, and interacting with your friends at the table. I and I have not played Gloomhaven yet. Uh, at least not, I've seen a lot of stuff about it. Like so, I don't know whether I would love it or not. But the way you just described it, I mean, why not go back to Hero Quest? Because it's Hero Quest in modern gaming language. Gloomhaven is to board gaming today what Hero Quest did for board gaming back then. It's that good, Bert. Uh, you know, now, now I'm going to pull it out, and we're going to have Gloomhaven on the table for three months for the wife to bitch about. Oh, man. <laughs> um, but no, without a shadow of a doubt, if you are serious about co-op, you have a dedicated gaming group, 
and you're not quite ready to run Dungeons and Dragons, you're playing Gloomhaven. Now, I have an honorable mention too, Bert, and I couldn't okay. I couldn't include it with the base I guess grouping of games that we talked about for a couple of reasons. It almost it, it, were it not for these reasons, it would have replaced Gloomhaven on my list. Hmm, do tell. Mansions of Madness. Oh, Mansions of Madness, yes. Uh, now, a couple reasons why it's an honorable mention. One, I knew that the co-op space, especially in our conversation, was going to be dominated by Arkham games. So, number one, that's why it's not there. But the primary reason why it's not there is that it is scenario-based. True. And although, even with extensive play, you're not necessarily going to blow through all of the scenarios in any quick fashion, there is the possibility that you'll run out of content. Even though the content will be different every time you play it slightly, you'll still know the general scenario. So that's why it's just an honorable mention. But Mansions of Madness is spectacular. It's an app companion game where you're exploring something going on in the Arkham universe and, you know, saving the world from something eating it. It has even more premium components than Eldritch Horror, which we talked about. The addition of that app was amazing for that game. The app makes that game special. But again, it also makes it finite. It is also a heavy investment. If you want to go all in on Mansions of Madness, I shudder to think what my mansions cost me, considering that I am... A, complete. B, I bought all of the app DLC. Yes, there's app DLC to purchase. And I've even pimped it out as far as storage, right? I have I have the Mansions True. of Madness Tome of Horrors that comes out, which is two very, very nice leather-bound 1920s antique-looking steamer trunks. But... I couldn't include it on the list just because of the fact that it's finite. And then secondarily, it's it's expensive. And not everything, again, is available because some True. of it is out of print. But Mansions, Mansions is definitely my honorable mention for the week. We've always had fun playing it. We do. We, and we played it more than once, which is rare for our group. In fact, I think all of the co-ops that we mentioned with the exception of last night on earth. True. True. <laughs> we have played multiple times in our group and that is very high praise. Yeah. So good list, Bert. I think we put together a very, very respectable list of cooperative experiences that can, people can have in the board game space. Absolutely. I mean, looking at the list, we've got something for everyone. There's, if you include Battlestar Galacta, we've got sci-fi elements, we've got horror elements, fantasy elements. Like, there's all kinds of different ways that you can go, and some of them were true co-ops, some of them were co-ops with traders. Like, there's a lot to pick from there. I think we've done pretty well at answering those questions. I agree. 
I agree. We've done a good job. We deserve an ice cream cone tonight. So, with that being said, I think we should go and uh, hop into DeLorean and head down to Dairy Queen. What do you th- What do you say, Bert? I'm in. I can always go for an ice cream, man. All right. Well, then we are going to call it a night. But before we do, we want to remind you, go to the podcast provider of your choice, subscribe, like, star, rate, review, do all of the above, but most importantly, make sure that you are locked in with your subscription so that you don't miss a single release of Nerd Cognito. We're available on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, you name it, it's there. There's a bunch of other ones, too. You can find the complete list at nerdcognito.com. My name is Ryan David. I was joined by Bert. Until next week, my friends, keep it nerdy. Everybody be safe, and we'll see you next week.